Hello, I'm Dr. Chris Zink. I'm a specialist in canine sports medicine and rehabilitation. I am passionate about dogs, and you're listening to another episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Welcome to the Animal Academy podcast. I'm Allison White, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in the human-animal connection. This podcast will showcase professionals who share their areas of expertise in an ongoing series of interviews, and you are there. Their input, stories, and knowledge will help us all understand that we are the ones that actually end up learning from the animals. This is the Animal Academy Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Animal Academy Podcast. As a clinical social worker who has been part of the healthcare system for many years, I've recognized the valuable influence animals have on my clients' lives. I've also benefited from having animals as part of my family since I was young. When clients come to me for therapy after the loss of a pet, they often feel shame after being told, it's only a pet or they feel guilty since this loss impacts them as much or more than the loss of a human loved one. When I began my community service project as part of the veterinary social work program, I read everything I could find on the importance of the human-animal relationship. One book that was helpful was called Animal-Assisted Therapy and Activities by Phil Arco. It's an amazing resource guide for the use of animals in animal-assisted interventions. This also helped me as a volunteer for the touch therapy program that I was involved in with my golden retriever for many years. I am honored to have Phil Arco join me on this episode so he can enlighten us about the work he has done in the field and the many projects that help to educate professionals on the importance of the human-animal connection. I'd like to introduce Phil Arco. Phil, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Well, thank you, Allison. I'm pleased to be here. I'm the coordinator of the National Link Coalition, which is the National Resource Center on the Link Between Animal Abuse and Human Violence. Uh, we're at nationallinkcoalition.org. It's my pleasure to be here and sharing all this information with you. Thank you. Glad to have you tonight. What we're going to do, Phil, is, is make sure that we put the link to that organization in our show notes so people can refer back to that and learn more about it. Very good. There is a huge <laughs> raft of information there. We have a whole section on resources that's broke out by the many professions that are involved with all this. We have tools for veterinarians, for social workers, for law enforcement, for prosecutors, for domestic violence agencies, for child and adult protection agencies, and many, many others. The beauty of all this is how multidisciplinary it is because we're all in this together, and no one agency or field can solve it all or has the adequate resources to solve it all, but by working together and pooling our limited resources, we can all do a much better job of preventing family violence in all mm -hmm. of its forms. Mm -hmm. Now, Phil, as a therapist, I realize the importance of asking clients about their pets, and they often seem surprised that I even ask this as part of my intake assessment. I do a lot of work with uh, people who have experienced childhood trauma, and adult trauma, domestic violence. And I always ask about their pets because when we're doing resourcing or trying to get clients to feel more at ease, more comfortable before we start the therapy process and during the therapy process, I often bring in their pets, not physically into the office, but as part of the discussion, 
so they can focus more on receiving the care and the love from their pets that they may not get from other people. The essence of animal-assisted intervention, when you really boil it down, is that people love to talk about their pets. Mm-hmm. A pet is a conversation waiting to happen. And even if they don't have a pet, you bring an animal into the room and the dynamics change. And everybody's got something to say, either positive or negative, where they may just not want to be around the animal or they're allergic to it or they were traumatized by a bite as a child or whatever. But the fact is, everybody's got something to say and opinion about it. Along the way, I started looking at not only the good side of the human-animal bond, but the dark side. And I had a couple of episodes in the 1980s that caused me to really think, rethink what we were doing in animal welfare and animal protection vis-a-vis how we were you know, getting any progress made. And we weren't getting a lot of progress made because we were focusing on, oh, isn't this terrible how we're hurting the animals? Well, of course it's terrible that you're hurting animals, but the fact is funders and legislators don't care about that because like social workers, they've never had any training, they've never had any exposure to animal issues, and it hasn't occurred to them that, in fact, when you abuse animals, you're also hurting people. So I began concentrating as well, not only on the good side of the bond, but this dark side. It's what we call the link, Mm -hmm. and it's the areas where child abuse, domestic violence, elder abuse, and animal abuse intersect. The fact is animal abuse rarely occurs in a vacuum. It's the tip of the iceberg. Whoever investigates animal cruelty in a particular community is a first responder who very frequently will see other forms of family violence. And similarly, child protection workers, adult protective service workers, people working in the domestic violence field will see animal abuse. And it's not a case of anybody having to be an expert in the other forms of family violence going on. They just have to know that it's there, be sensitized to it, look for some basic signs that might raise a red flag, and then make a referral to the appropriate agency in their community to say, hey, I saw this, you might want to look into it and let them take it from there. Meanwhile, veterinarians are caught right in the middle of all that because veterinarians will see all four forms of family violence, and they are being trained not only to specifically recognize and respond to suspected animal abuse. We now have 36 states in which veterinarians are either required by law or at least permitted to report suspected abuse. But we're just starting to make some initial gains in having veterinarians recognize the responsibility to respond to suspected domestic violence as well. So that, in a real short nutshell, is how I got here. Well, and Phil, that raises so many questions for me. Let me let me start with one, is that when you were talking about veterinarians in some states being mandated reporters for animal abuse, correct? Yeah. What about a therapist who has a client come in and talk about the animal abuse that's happening in their home? There are no states in which everyone is a mandated reporter of animal abuse, as there is with child abuse. We have 18 states where everybody is a mandated reporter of child abuse, and that supersedes the professional challenges or the professional restrictions that therapists or or counselors or social Mm -hmm. workers might have. They still have to report it. And in fact, even the NASW, National Association of Social Workers, has in their guidelines a rather interesting provision that says you can violate confidentiality and report suspected child abuse, for example, if others in the household are at risk. It doesn't say who others are. As far as I'm concerned, others can have two legs or four legs. 
And if animal abuse is a potential indicator and predictor of child abuse, domestic violence, and elder abuse, we have lots of information on our website, nationallinkcoalition.org, about all that. And there's no reason why social workers shouldn't feel obligated to report suspected abuse. They can report crime to another law enforcement officer. Well, the people who investigate animal cruelty are law enforcement officers. You can report to them. And particularly for people who are under stress, whether they're being interviewed by a law enforcement agency, a counselor, a child sexual abuse counselor, children's advocacy center, a therapist, their barriers are up. They've been through the system. They're being asked uncomfortable questions about something that happened to them or having to come to grips with their own feelings, their own responses, the issues that are going on in their lives. And so they are naturally scared and apprehensive, and they have this wall built up. Well, the animals cut through that. Mm -hmm. And it's not just having their own animals present as a source of comfort or your own pet as a therapist there as a source of comfort. But even just asking them about their pets opens up an enormous window. It breaks down that barrier, builds an immediate sense of rapport, an immediate sense of trust, so the therapist suddenly appears as somebody who really cares about me and my family and, and my pets because my pets are important to me. And it opens up a window into their world. And when you start asking them basic questions like, what are their names? Who cares for them? Have you ever had to worry about them? Where are they at right now? You will get an amazing series of responses. And you can tease that information out and interpolate from that what else is going on in that household? What are the dynamics? What are the resiliency factors? What are the stress factors? What are the challenges in interfamily relationships? Because the way people react to their pets is a mirror of how they react to each other. Mm-hmm. So you can identify risk factors and resiliency factors, get a window into their world, build rapport. It becomes a win-win-win all the way around. You know, Phil, that reminds me, too. I, I worked in community mental health for a number of years, actually over 25 years, and one of my community service projects for the veterinary social work program was to work with underserved populations to try to find resources for their pets. And we have a local resource, by state Food Pantry, and we would get donations from by state Food Pantry and take the pet food to our clients who had pets. But also, it was a way in the door, because if they saw us bringing treats to their pets, then they thought, oh, you're okay, I'm going to let you in. So it really helped that connection. That is the exact same phenomenon. Mm-hmm. When we show concern for people's pets, we become the good guys, Yeah, and they let us in. You had mentioned, too, the importance, um, and I think I read this, something that you wrote, about family genograms and, and doing these in order to see the significant relationship they have. Yeah, this is a concept I was not familiar with. I'm not a social worker myself, and I came across this last year. I had never seen this before. Uh, it was in an article that was written in 2011, I believe it was. There's a model of including pets in the family genogram. And for those listening who don't know what a genogram is, it's a uh, map, essentially, of all the relationships in a family going back two or three generations. It's not a genealogy table, but it just shows who is attracted or repelled or attached to somebody else in that family to show, again, where the risk and resiliency factors are and what the strengths are for you know, a person's recovery or 
support systems or whatever. This report from 2011 included animals in the genogram. And it was the first time I'd ever seen that. I have looked around in a lot of social work literature, and it's not routinely included, which is, you know, another reason why social workers generally aren't getting this kind of training. It just never occurs to them that there are emotional attachments within that household. If we can just get the textbooks to start including pets in the genograms, think about the progress we're going to make Mm -hmm. in identifying issues and helping people solve their problems. It would be huge. Yeah. There's a hotline that used to call us all the time and say, we're having an issue because we have a client who calls pretty frequently and and this person's suicidal but will not get treatment because they don't want to leave their pet at home and they need to be hospitalized. And the question is, what do we do? So that was another part of my community service project is trying to find resources in the community. And we were we were able to find a mobile veterinarian who got a grant to be able to go into people's homes and vaccinate their pets. So if that client needed to be hospitalized for psychiatric, medical reasons, whatever it should be, they would at least have the vaccines to be able to board their pet. So then the next thing was to try to find somebody who was safe for this person to leave their pet with. But it's a start. And I think that that's really a necessary avenue that needs a lot of, of help at this point, because people are, are not going to get medical or psychiatric treatment because of their pets. Exactly right. They're not going to go into hospitals. They're not going to go into long-term care facilities. They are not going to leave a domestic violence abusive relationship mm-hmm. if there's no services available to provide long or short-term foster care for their pets. And those mm-hmm. pets may not just be dogs and cats. It could be iguanas or horses or anything in between. One of the things that has developed in the last few years, which we're really excited about, is the domestic violence field has really stepped up to the plate with this. We now have 219 domestic violence shelters in the U.S. and 18 more overseas that are pet-friendly, where the family can bring their pets with them. We have several hundred more where they at least have a cooperative foster care plan in place off-site with veterinarians, boarding kennels, local humane societies, animal rescue groups, or whatever. I see social workers from the outside, not being one myself, as primarily being problem solvers. And so when you have this kind of an issue that you haven't had any training on, and you scratch your head and say, what do I do for this person who's suicidal and I need to care for his pet? Social workers step up to the plate and know how to or find a way to solve that problem, which will differ from community to community. So there are groups out there. I encourage people to start with local humane societies or SBCAs or the Animal Control Agency, certainly veterinarians. And one of the things about the animal care and control field is that we are incredibly passionate about this and extremely well-connected. And I can guarantee you that if you call an animal shelter in your community, wherever you are, because you have a client who has oh, let's just say a pet iguana, and they need the home for the iguana. And this shelter may not have any experience with iguanas, but they will know somebody who does. Mm -hmm. It's just a case of making a few phone calls, and I encourage people in these fields to set up those lines of communications first. So when you have a client with an issue, whatever that is, you know who to call on the other end of the line. You're not starting from scratch. And go see their facility. Go see their shelter. You can't necessarily do it right now during covid 
but when things loosen up and we get back to some semblance of normal, see what their operations are like so you know what's going on. They are an amazing resource. And a decent-sized animal shelter in a big city, you know, it's not unusual taking 60 to 100 animals a day. Think of the number of people that that impacts. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and we assisted clients in adopting many um, animals from the shelter. And one of the things that we stress to the client is that if we're going to help you um, with this, we need to have some kind of a safety plan in place. So if you should go into the hospital, the pet's vaccinated, and you have a safety plan. And a lot of times with people that have substance use disorders, we found that this would actually help their recovery. It would give them a reason to stay out of the hospital. It would give them a reason to not go back to using drugs and alcohol. And it gave them a purpose in life. So it really, it was good to involve that and be very proactive. Okay, you're going to be taking in another life into your household. Let's make sure that you're all safe. That is absolutely true. And we're finding more and more applications of that. I just came across something this week uh, looking at the COVID situation regarding people and their pets and the, the family violence issues that are emerging from as a result of lockdown. And we're treating it like what a researcher in Indianapolis, Andrew Campbell, calls a slow-moving disaster. Without getting too far afield with that, one of the points that was coming out with this is that just like in a natural disaster, whether it's a hurricane, uh, fires in California, whatever, people will not get off the rooftops and get into the rescue helicopter unless they can take their pets with them. Mm-hmm. One of the things that came out of Hurricane Katrina in 2006 was a federal law that says that if your county wants federal funding for uh, disaster relief through FEMA, you won't get that money unless you also have a pet evacuation plan in place, and that oh. has worked beautifully in the last 14, 15 years. But we're telling, just like you know what you're saying with your client there in the substance abuse, we're finding if you tell people who say, no, nah, the flooding isn't going to get to me, no, nah, the fire's not going to catch up with me, if you take them, tell them, you know, you're putting your animals at risk. Your pets could be harmed by the smoke inhalation, or they're going to burn to death. Get out of there, if not for you, your concerns, but to save your pets' lives, mm-hmm. they will do it. It motivates people to take care of themselves because they're taking care of their animals. Yeah, you're you're so correct, Phil. And I'll tell you what, Phil, we've been discussing so many important and interesting topics. Do you mind if we take a short break? Go right ahead. Okay, we'll be back soon. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Do you like what you're hearing during this episode of the Animal Academy podcast? If so... Consider having your business, organization, or effort connect with me to see how you can sponsor or be featured inside this podcast. Visit my website over at animalacademypodcast.com and let's have a conversation. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Corps. 
The one question every podcaster needs to ask themselves is why am I still editing my own podcast? We all know that editing your own podcast is the worst part of the podcast experience. Get the editing off your plate and reclaim more time to make more content with The Editor Core. Affordable, talented, experienced podcast editors are ready to take your podcast literally to the next level to make it soar. Make your podcast soar with The Editor Core. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Welcome back, everybody. We've been talking with Phil Arco about the work he has done in the field of the human-animal relationship and some important information to consider. Phil, right before the break, we were talking about emergency procedures and the importance of involving our pets in our emergency plans. Is there anything else that you'd like to share on that subject? It's pretty important. It's very important, absolutely. Whether it is uh, planning for your pets if you have to make a move, if you are going to go into assisted living or a hospital or long-term care. But also, we are encouraging people in the domestic violence field in particular to include pets in their safety planning. And for those who aren't familiar with it, safety planning is a common practice in domestic violence where the survivor, who is usually a woman, and the abuser is usually a male, but not always. We have women who abuse men and we have intimate partner violence in uh, same-sex relationships. But for the sake of argument and simplicity, I'll just go with what normally happens. Encouraging her to have a safety plan so that when she has that brief little 20-minute window while he's out doing something, that she can escape and get out of the house and have all the important papers and the kids' materials and the clothes and whatever she's going to need to make a fast getaway. Well. The toys and the food and the licenses and the collars and the microchips and the veterinary records and everything else for the pets need to be ready to go at a moment's notice as well. And along those lines, what we are encouraging domestic violence survivors to do is to get as much of that paperwork in her name. The rabies vaccination, the license, the microchips, the pet food bills, the veterinary bills, pedigree papers, So if it comes down to an ugly, contentious dispute in a divorce case, and I have seen that happen, I've seen situations where one party brings the animal into the shelter to keep the other party from getting it in the divorce, she can have a much better strategy for proving that she should be the caregiver of the animal because she's got all the records. And we're training domestic violence shelters to just simply amend their their safety planning brochures to include a paragraph in there about making sure you have everything the pet is going to need as well. It isn't complicated. It doesn't take more than a couple lines of type, and it can save innumerable lives. By the way, let me just tell you about one thing in the public policy arena, which is another major area where social workers can get involved with Mm -hmm. all this, knowing social workers' interest in public policy Mm -hmm. and social justice. We now have four states that have recognized how contentious these divorces can be when animals are up for grabs in, in, in the disposition of property. And Alaska and California, Illinois, and New Hampshire now say that in a divorce settlement, the court can award custody of the pet in the animal's best interest. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I mean, it just models what's been going on for decades in child custody uh, decisions. And we are just really excited to see that. That's just come about in the last three or four years, 
and uh, we're very, very excited, and we hope to see a few more states uh, get on board with that same procedure. Oh, that's that's wonderful news. Phil, what are some other areas do you think that people who are in the helping profession, social workers, counselors, whatever, could be involved in when it comes to really getting to know the human-animal relationship, valuing it, and helping people with any issues that may come up? There are so many, many areas. It's really exciting. I've got an article uh, that's coming out in the I believe it's going to be the December issue of the uh, Journal of Child and Adolescent Social Work. It's already available online, I think. The hard copy will be out in a, in a little bit here. But we, I, I identified a number of career opportunities for people who care about all this, above and beyond the veterinary social work field. I mean, that was the, the first and the, the largest area. That got started, I think, about 10 years ago at the University of Tennessee. And that's an amazing collaboration between the School of Social Work and the School of uh, Veterinary Medicine at UT. And you've been a part of that program, so you can talk more about that than I can. But that is putting social workers to work in veterinary hospitals around the country and around the world, actually, where they're working on such areas as grief management, and compassion fatigue, wellness training. Veterinarians right now have an extremely high suicide rate, so this is extremely important. They're working in animal-assisted interventions. They're working with dealing with contentious clients. Veterinarians are not people mm-hmm. people. They are animal people, and they go into it because they're not necessarily comfortable dealing with contentious people. Well, a social worker can help mitigate and diffuse those arguments. And then, of course, also the link between animal abuse and human violence. We see similar opportunities that haven't really started up yet. I uh, would love to see more social workers do this and do that same kind of work in animal shelters. Because as I said earlier, an animal shelter sees everything. And we're dealing with compassion fatigue, the stress of, use, of euthanasia in an animal shelter, angry clients, and a public that doesn't understand what's going on. And social workers could get jobs in some of the larger shelters around the country to help solve some of those issues. We'd like to see more social workers in children's advocacy centers and victim services units where animals can play a major role. We now have a goodly number of children's advocacy centers where therapy dogs come in to help work with the children who have uh, experienced uh, sexual assault and to help them confront their interviewer or to be interviewed, I should say, to go through the uh, forensic process, to be interviewed by the detectives. And just like you found with your clients, it softens the environment. It makes them more willing to talk and speak. And then follow the kids in the court when they have to testify. And we have, I think it's 10 states now that specifically allow therapy dogs to accompany children or adults into court where it's extremely stressful under normal circumstances, but here they have to confront their abuser and talk about things that are extremely uh, uncomfortable to talk about. Social workers can get involved with that. Homeless shelters, we have a tremendous number of homeless people who really depend on their pets for security, for safety, and as magnets to attract uh, people to come by and to give them donations. Uh, Social workers working with homeless populations should be sensitized to that issue. And social workers in domestic violence shelters, again, helping people resolve their issues with their pets and find transition and permanent housing afterwards 
where they can take their pets with them. And by the way, there's a fan, fantastic resource out there that I just learned about. I'm sure everybody else knows about it, but I just heard about it this week. It's a website called apartmentguide.com, and you can enter any city in the country, and it lists apartments, and you can filter it by price, by number of bedrooms, by uh, rental costs, number of bathrooms, but also by being pet-friendly. Hmm. And it's a tremendous resource for people who you know need to find homes. Every animal shelter is deluged with people who say, I need to get rid of my pets because we have to move and I can't find a pet-friendly apartment. Well, a social worker can help them find pet-friendly housing, whether it's an animal shelter, domestic violence shelter, uh, or client with some other kind of issue who, who needs to relocate. We are encouraging social workers to be aware of a bizarre phenomenon which affects animal shelters and veterinarians, and that's when somebody comes in and asks to have all their animals put to sleep. Mm, okay. First thing you do, call the suicide prevention hotline. That's a surefire sign that they're trying to clean up all their affairs, and they don't want to leave their animals behind for somebody else. And then, of course, we are creating community link coalitions and anti-cruelty coalitions, focusing on this multidisciplinary approach at preventing all forms of family violence by bringing local people together in these various fields to create community-wide interventions and multidisciplinary uh, campaigns and programs, social workers could do an amazing job of facilitating all that. So there's so many creative possibilities for people to be helpful. Absolutely, and social workers can play a huge role in all that once they're sensitized to the fact that animals are indeed part of the family, and we have bonds between people and their animals. It's called a human-animal bond. So the first step, it sounds like, when you're being introduced to somebody that you're working with, whether it be a therapist, a counselor, social worker, is to find out, start with who are the important people, you know, support system, including all your pets, and start with just the basics. I think a genogram would be awesome. Yeah, the genogram certainly. Uh, what we recommend is, uh, you know, three simple questions. Are there pets at home? How are they cared for? And are you worried about their welfare? Okay. They're nice, open-ended questions. Uh, the first response you're going to get is, why are you asking me about that? And you say, well, I need to get a little bit more information about you. Find a little bit about what your home life is like. Do you have any pets? And they may or may not. I mean, it could very well be that they don't have pets, and that's okay. And then you just move on to something else. Uh, it could be that they don't value pets as much as you and I do, but at least it gets a conversation started. And that's the important thing, is, is creating that rapport with the people that you're working with and the trusting relationship. And it really does start with acknowledging the people and the pets in their lives that are important to them. Exactly right. And it could be, for many people, their pets are the only important things in their mm-hmm. lives. A lot of people are codependent on their animals, or they're socially isolated. We see this with, with seniors. That animal may be the only excuse she has to get out of bed in the morning Maybe the only reason he has to get out of the house and take the dog for a walk and get some some movement and some exercise. It could also be the last link to a spouse who passed away. And when that animal passes on, it can be emotionally devastating for the client. And we see an awful lot of, uh, I met an awful lot of people in 20 years of visiting nursing homes who 
waited for all their pets to die before they went into long-term care. Mm -hmm. And they did not want to get another pet because they were afraid they would outlive it. And they didn't want to burden somebody else with caring for a new pet. So it sounds like there are a lot of considerations. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We have programs in the St. Louis area that uh, one is seniors. I believe it's called Seniors Helping Seniors. And there are a lot of cool resources that we have, but we are in need of so many more to help clients be able to hang on to the pets. And there's almost a judgment sometimes that I've heard, especially working with the indigent population, underserved population, that why do they have pets if they can't afford them? So that was always kind of an obstacle that I heard in working with my clients. And these were often people that were homeless on the streets for a period of time, whether it be due to a chronic mental illness, medical condition without insurance, low income, but they saved these these animals from the streets or adopted them from family members or, or friends. And now they're providing the support and they consider this four-legged family member to be their only support. So it's always been my thought is that it's important to be able to support this relationship and build the resources around it. Absolutely. As I said earlier, they, they rely on the pets for security and attracting donations. It could be the only emotional support they, that they have. They feel like they're doing something good. and It empowers them and makes them feel useful. The homeless population can be really uh, difficult to work with for a lot of reasons, but their animals are often important to them. How many times have we seen street people buying food for their dogs? Mm-hmm. With, you know, they'll use food stamps for their human food, but they will buy food for their animals. Or we have a situation, uh, particularly with, with elders, seniors, that could also be the homeless as well. They may love their animals dearly, but because of limitations, the pets are neglected. But the flip side of that, and this gets into what you were saying, is the self-neglect. They will spend what limited money they have on their pets, and they themselves are not getting the medical or nutritional care that they need. And we see this all the time, but those animals are just immensely important to them. Let me share a resource with you, the most dramatic thing I've ever seen with this. It's a video. I think it may be on YouTube. If not, I know it's on Vimeo. And the video is called Sleeping Rough, R-U-F-F. The term Sleeping Rough, R-O-U-G-H, is the British term for what we call street people. Mm. This was a documentary shot in 2004 in Edinburgh, Scotland, interviewing street people on the streets of Edinburgh with their pets. And what they have to say about the significance of the pets in their lives is absolutely mind-boggling in terms of how significant and how important these animals are. Mm -hmm. It's a fabulous video. Definitely worth watching. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for that. We're going to put that in the show notes as well. At the very beginning of the podcast, Phil, you were talking about the puppies and you took them into a facility and you said there was magic. Can you describe what that magic felt like? Oh, it just felt, you know, like I said, little old ladies with love in their hearts and time in their hands and suddenly their eyes opened up and they were excited and they had reminiscences and they had something to talk about and they talked to each other. They talked through the animals to each other. They shared stories. They, we would wind up going back every two weeks. They would look forward to it for a week in advance and talk about it for a week afterwards. 
Uh, life in a long-term care facility can be extremely regimented, uh, isolated, uh, people who feel like everybody has abandoned them, but the animals break through mm-hmm. and they just love them. Mm-hmm. I will share with you my most heartwarming story. This was in the mid-1980s, I guess it was, early 1980s. And I visited this woman in, in a long-term care facility in Colorado Springs. Her name was Maud. And Maud had been raised uh, in Missouri, of all places, in a rural part of Missouri. I think it was in western Missouri. And her father was a Methodist minister, and he was very strict, and he would not let her dance. And so as a young girl, she ran away from home. She wound up in Colorado. She married, raised a family. She would have been a, a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse for decades. And now here she was in her 90s in this nursing home, sprightly, full of life and vigor, and the brightest smile I think of anybody I've ever seen. And I would visit her every two weeks with with some puppies or kittens from the shelter, and we would just chat. Well, one day, and this is in the mid-'80s, we are sitting there, and she's stroking the puppy, and completely out of the blue, she says, wasn't that terrible how they tried to shoot the president? And this was right after the assassination attempt on President Reagan. Hmm. And I said, yeah, I can't imagine why anybody would want to shoot President Reagan. And she said, I don't think that's his name. And hmm. I said, you think of President Kennedy? And she thought of me and said, no, nope, that doesn't sound right either. So I just had to step back for a little bit because I didn't know where she was going. But you could see she's petting this puppy and the wheels are turning and that amazing hard drive we all have between our ears is clicking <laughs> into gear and she's trying to retrieve just one little bite of information from 90 some odd years of living and all of a sudden she just popped up and she said mckinley oh my goodness she had been a girl on the farm when news reached the farm in western missouri that president mckinley had been shot and for those of you who slept through that class in high school history that was in 1901 this dog had taken her back 80 years in time. Oh, my goodness. And that is the incredible power of reminiscence and memory and imagination that pets can trigger in all of us. Mm-hmm. Another way of looking at that is particularly for anybody working with children. Whatever kids are experiencing with their pets can have lifelong emotional and physical reverberations down the lifespan. And that can be the puppy that followed them home from school, the kitten that, you know, kept that litter of kittens in the closet, the calf they raised for 4-H and sent off to slaughter, or it could be mommy's abusive boyfriend who slaughtered the cat and mailed the ears to mommy as a way to warn her what would happen if she tried to leave. Any of these can play a major role, and we should really consider them an adverse childhood experience, mm-hmm. even if the Centers for Disease Control did not include them in their famous ACEs study. Mm-hmm. But there are considerations that can leave huge scars on people's lives. Absolutely. Or, or Absolutely. When, I, when I'm doing therapy with people, we go back and talk about who are the supports in your life. And a lot of people will say, my pets. Yeah, absolutely. And when a pet dies, whether it's with an adult or a child, we can't trivialize it. Mm-hmm. The person can go through the same stages of death and dying that Kubler-Ross, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross identified when it comes to the death of a beloved pet as they would for the death of a human member of the family. Mm-hmm. And we have to memorialize that. We have to honor it. We have to validate it. And, you know, burying that canary in the shoebox in the backyard can be as important to a five-year-old 
as a major funeral is for an adult. Well, and that's right. And again, some of the, the people that I've talked to said, you know, I just don't feel validated. I don't feel like anybody really feels the significance of me losing my pet. So they're afraid to even talk to people to get the support they need. That's exactly right. Well, one of the things that has developed over the years to deal with that are pet loss support groups. Mm-hmm. And we see a number of them at veterinary teaching hospitals. We have a number of therapists around the country. There are some associations uh, where there are resources available for that, a lot of books out there uh, explaining pet loss, particularly to children. And if we get more therapists and social workers and counselors to recognize how serious this is and if it's important to that person, we have to validate it and make sure that we don't trivialize it. Well, and I just found out a a resource, and we're going to be talking to them in a future podcast, but there's a a resource, and we'll put this in the show notes, called VetVine, V-I-N-E, and they have online pet loss and bereavement groups. So I was excited to hear about that. So, Phil, we have talked about so many exciting things today. What else would you like to share with us before we end this episode? Oh, I think that's probably pretty much it. I would just encourage people who are interested in more of this to send me an email if they have any questions. I'll be more than pleased to answer them. If you'd like to get on our mailing list to receive our free monthly link letter about animal abuse and human violence, send me an email uh, or, you know, you can get me through the website and uh, be more than pleased to have you uh, join the ranks of people who care about all this. We have right now over 4,300 people in all 50 states and 55 countries who are working in this area on uh, the link between animal abuse and human violence. And there are all sorts of amazing resources on the good side of the bond, the Animal Assisted Interventions Program. I teach an online course in this uh, through Arkham College, and uh, i give you more information on that. Uh, well, our next course will be, it's a 10-week online course. Next one starts in January, and then we'll do it again next April. So if you're interested in taking that, um, that, my website there has information that's animaltherapy.net. So between animaltherapy.net or nationallinkcoalition.org, get in touch with me and I'll be more than pleased to work with you. Terrific. Thank you so much, Phil. I appreciate talking to you tonight. Thanks for sharing all these tremendous resources to help our animals and the people we work and with. And thank you, Allison, for all you're doing to help uh, people and animals work together and help each other out. Thank you and take care. There can be no denying that the connections between animals and people aren't just a bond. They are indicators that often instantly provide what that person feels is valuable to them. Often it can offer a welcome mat to a now open doorway rather than a tightly closed portal to something you would have never had access to. Animals play a significant role in many families. Utilizing the power of the relationship between the person and the animal allows us to move forward to help everyone involved. Phil's stories, information, and details help us understand that all of these things, and more, are important, only if we take the time to consider and implement them. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Animal Academy podcast. Detailed contact information and links for each of the guests and resources provided inside this episode can be found at my website, animalacademypodcast.com. I'm Allison White licensed clinical social worker specializing in the human-animal connection. Let's share and learn from the animals in the next episode of the Animal Academy podcast.